Good morning. It is Kale and Company live right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, 1450 on the AM dial, 1039 FM in the capital region of New Hampshire, and 1019 FM in Manchester and beyond, as well as streaming around the world and around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. You can also find us on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram as well. So uh, we are almost impossible to miss. And uh, glad that you could be with us here on uh, this Wednesday morning. And uh, I tell you what, it was really a very busy day yesterday in uh, presidential primary politics in the state of New Hampshire as uh, Donald Trump was in the state. Ron DeSantis was here. Vivek Ramaswamy made a few appearances yesterday. Nikki Haley was delayed in getting to the state. And many, many thousands of people were delayed on airlines yesterday, especially on the East Coast because of some very strong and significant storms. So Nikki Haley wasn't the only one that was was delayed in getting to her destination. But I believe uh, she has uh, made it to the state and will make a few appearances today. There's a new poll out that shows uh, former President Trump with a significant lead in the Republican primary race in New Hampshire. The poll from the St. Anselm College Survey Center shows that 47% of registered voters in New Hampshire say they would vote for Trump If the primary were held today, that's 47%. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is in second place with 19%, quite a distance behind. I would uh, tabulate that 28 points behind uh, Donald Trump. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is next with 6%, followed by a former United Nations ambassador and Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley at 5%, and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott at 4%. Tied in sixth place are entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, former Vice President Mike Pence, and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson at 2%. Now, the fact that uh, Ramaswamy, Burgum, and Hutchinson are at 2% is not surprising to me. The fact that Vice President, former Vice President Mike Pence has such little traction right now uh, in New Hampshire does surprise me. I, I, I like Mike Pence. I think uh, Mike Pence was an outstanding Vice President and... Uh, would make would make a very good president of the United States, in my opinion. But apparently, his campaign, at least right now, is not resonating here in the Granite State. Ten percent of respondents said they're not sure uh, who they would vote for. On the Democratic side, Joe Biden is the choice of 68 percent of registered voters followed by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. at 9%. I I thought he was doing better than that, but uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. at 9%. 
and Marianne Williamson at 8%. But Joe Biden has not officially, and the word is that he probably won't enter the New Hampshire Democratic primary. The poll of 1,065 New Hampshire registered voters was conducted from June 21st to the 23rd by cell phone. Poll was an overall margin of a sampling error of plus or minus 3%. The Republican ballot question has a margin of sampling error of plus or minus 4.4%, while the Democratic ballot question has a margin of sampling error of plus or minus 4.8%. Poll also asked people about a potential matchup between Biden and Trump and found that 83% said that would be a clear sign that the party system is broken. Just uh, 27% of registered voters said they believe Trump's claim that the 2020 presidential election was stolen, and 42% believe that the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop are a legitimate election concern. And it's not just not just necessarily the, uh, the laptop, but there's so many issues regarding uh, Hunter Biden that we're finding out uh, a little bit more every day. And in fact, uh, surprisingly, some of the, uh, the left-leaning media has begun to talk about this. Uh, which they didn't for years. I mean, uh, this this was news quite some time ago, folks, as you know, during the uh, 2016 election. Uh, the allegations uh, against Hunter Biden began to surface then. But, of course, the major networks uh, would not touch it. Uh, it was, uh, you know, certainly uh, <laughs> talked about... Uh, uh, quite extensively on Fox News and on Newsmax, but the uh, the networks ABC, NBC, CBS, uh, also uh, MSNBC, CNN would not touch it and have not said really very much about Hunter Biden until very recently. So we'll see where, where that goes. I mean, there certainly are a lot of uh, questions swirling around that. And, of course, uh, the, the aging of uh, President Biden. In head-to-head matchups, New Hampshire registered voters said they support Biden over Trump and Biden over DeSantis, both by margins of 49 to 40 percent. Fifty-five percent believe that the recent indictments of Trump are legitimate, New Hampshire registered voters said they were more concerned about Biden's age than Trump's. The poll found that 70%, of all voters, including 50% of Democrats, are concerned about the age of the 80-year-old incumbent, while only 34% of registered voters are concerned about the age of the 77-year-old former president. Folks, the fun has only begun on the uh, primary trail, and uh, we will see how it all plays out. And uh, it's going to be uh, an interesting number of months. We don't exactly know what the date of the primary is going to be as yet, 
But we will uh, we will keep you posted right here on WKXL. And if you have any comments, views, ideas, opinions that uh, that you would like to share, uh, you can do it uh, right here. 603-224-1450. 603-224-1450. Just like our AM signal, it has uh, been around now in its 77th year here at uh, WKXL. 224 224- one four five zero. If you would like to uh, share your views, ideas, and opinions, right here on Kalen Company, or uh, you can hit me up on Twitter uh, at Kalen Company, which is presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. You can learn more and find your plan at Delta Dental Covers Me dot com. Coming up in the next half hour, we will be chatting with author Brenda Cherry about her new book, The East Indian. It's a historical novel, historical fiction, and an intriguing book that Brenda Cherry has just released, and we'll be talking with her during the next half hour. In case you missed it, Uh, Last night, not a good night uh, for the Red Sox as they lost to the Miami Marlins by a final score of 10-1 at uh, Fenway Park. The Red Sox have uh, almost reached the halfway mark of the season. They have 40 wins and 40 losses. Tonight will mark the official midway point of the 2023 baseball season when... The uh, Red Sox will host the Marlins in Game 2 of their three-game series. A couple of uh, tragic stories in sports surfaced yesterday, and uh, we will tell you about those coming up right after these words. It's Kale and Company Live right here, WKXL and HTalkRadio.com. Stay with us. Kale and Company live here on WKXL at htalkradio.com. A delight to have you with us on this 28th day of June. I mentioned the Red Sox lost last night 10 to 1. I'm following, and, and maybe some of you are as well, uh, Luis Arise of the Miami Marlins, who was at Fenway last night. He went 2 for 5 for the Marlins. And he ended the game batting 399, and he concluded the game at 399. And a good night, two for five. I mean, anytime you go two for five, it's a good night at the plate. And he just stayed at 399. So at this time of the season, the, the rule of thumb pretty much is that uh, your, your batting average uh, goes up a couple of points when you get a hit. It goes down like one point when you don't. Uh, except, you know, walk doesn't count as an at-bat and sacrifice fly. Uh, if you're hit by a pitch, it doesn't count as an at-bat. But if you make an out, uh, your your average goes down a point. If you get a hit, it goes up about two. That's the general rule of thumb 
around this time of the year, and he's batting 399 right now. Luis Arise, who was the American League batting champion last year and then uh, traded in the offseason by the Minnesota Twins to uh, Miami. A former uh, NFL and University of Arkansas quarterback Ryan Mallett died in an apparent drowning incident along Florida's Gulf Coast. Uh, He was uh, 35 years old. Arkansas's Deltaplex News reported on Tuesday that Mallet was transported after the incident from a beach in Destin, Florida, to a local hospital where he was pronounced dead. Officials with the Whitehall School District, where Mallet worked, confirmed his death. Mallet was the head football coach at Whitehall High School. The Okaloosa County Sheriff's Office confirmed the nature of Mallet's death in a statement. Uh, Tuesday afternoon, and I quote, a tourist died in in an apparent drowning offshore of uh, Gulf Shore Drive in Destin. A group of individuals were reportedly struggling offshore when a man went under. He was not breathing when lifeguards found uh, found him and pulled him out. Tragically, life-saving measures were not successful. The Okaloosa A county sheriff's office later confirmed the man identified as a tourist was Mallet after his next of kin was notified. News of Mallet's death arrives amid 11, 11 reported deaths attributed to rip currents along the Gulf Coast in recent weeks. Mallet played in college as a freshman in Michigan before transferring to Arkansas where he played two seasons. He was selected in the third round of the 2011 NFL Draft by the New England Patriots, and he played uh, seven seasons in the NFL with the Patriots, Houston Texas, uh, Houston Texans, I should say, and the Baltimore Ravens. A native of Batesville, Arkansas, Mallett was one of the best high school quarterbacks to ever play in his home state. He committed to play uh, for Michigan and made 11 appearances as a freshman backup to Chad Henney. Uh, with the Wolverines, transferred to Arkansas after the retirement of Michigan coach Lloyd Carr and started as a sophomore and junior with the Razorbacks. He declared for the draft after his junior year to join the NFL. Mallett played sparingly as a backup to Tom Brady, and the Patriots traded him to the Texans in 2014. He made nine appearances, including six starts for the Texans, uh, before they released him mid-season in 2015. He then signed with the Ravens, where he made eight appearances, including two starts through the 2017 season. Uh, Ryan Mallett, uh, dead at the age of 35. And uh, more tragic news in the world of sports uh, surfaced on Tuesday. The father-in-law and mother-in-law of seven-time NASCAR Cup Series champion Jimmy Johnson were found dead on Monday in a suspected murder-suicide. According to uh, Muskogee, Oklahoma police, 69-year-old Jack Janway, 68-year-old Terry Janway, and 11-year-old Dalton Janway were found shot after a disturbance call to the Janway's residence Monday evening. Dalton Janway is the Janway's grandson and the nephew of Jimmy Johnson and his wife, Chandra. Police believe that Chandra's mother, Terry, was the shooter. This is from uh, the Muskogee 
uh, police and the Muskogee Phoenix, which is the newspaper there. According to the Muskogee Police Department media release, dispatch received a call at approximately 9.05 p.m. Monday from the residence at 2827 Soroya Street from a young woman saying there was a, a disturbance and someone there with a gun then hung up. The release also says that officers found one victim, later identified as Jack Janway, laying in the hallway inside the house. Shortly after that, they heard another gunshot from further inside the house. Officers pulled Janway outside and began making announcements for any other occupants to come outside. And once more officers arrived, a search began of the residence, and they found Terry and Dalton dead inside the house. Jimmy and Chandra were married in 2004. They have uh, two daughters, Genevieve and uh, Lydia. Chandra Johnson grew up in Muskogee, where her father had worked as a chiropractor since 1983. Tragic news uh, out of uh, Muskogee. Jimmy Johnson was scheduled to compete in Sunday's NASCAR Cup Series race in Chicago, which, by the way, is going through the streets of Chicago, but has withdrawn from the event. Legacy Motor Club said the Johnson family has asked for privacy at this time, and uh, no further statements will be made. Johnson, who won his final Cup Series title in 2016, is tied with Dale Earnhardt and Richard Petty for the most Cup championships of any driver in NASCAR history. He retired from full-time competition in NASCAR in 2020 before racing in the IndyCar Series for two seasons. After becoming a co-owner of Legacy Motorsports, the team previously operated as Richard Petty Motorsports, Johnson returned to the Cup Series on a part-time basis. He's competed in three races so far in 2023 with his best finish at 31st at Daytona. Johnson has 83 Cup Series wins in 689 starts and ranks 6th all-time behind Petty, David Pearson, Jeff Gordon, Bobby Allison, and Daryl Waltrip. So just uh, certainly a tragic set of circumstances there in uh, Muskogee. Uh, today, by the way, June the 28th, 2023, what are we commemorating today? Well, it's Insurance Awareness Day. It's also International Body Piercing Day. I don't uh, intend to partake in that on this uh, particular occasion. Also, uh, National Tapioca Day. And it is also Paul Bunyan Day. You know Paul Bunyan, the, the lumberjack? His day is being commemorated today. And uh, Bangor, Maine, as many of you may know, claims to be both the birthplace of the lumber industry and the birthplace of Paul Bunyan. And a titan-sized statue in the city of Bangor reminds Bangorians of their connection to this character of American legend. Akeley, Minnesota, makes a competing Paul Bunyan birth claim. Akeley, Minnesota, with its own impressive statue as well as a uh, giant crib on display. But even though Minnesota is thickly forested with all manner of big Bunyan tributes, 
It even has his girlfriend and his grave. Uh, Maine certainly has enough trees to spawn a chopper like Paul. That's why it's refreshing to see the hulking woodsman in downtown Bangor. And for those who still question Bangor's birthplace claim, Bunyan's birth certificate is on display in the city clerk's office in City Hall. According to the official document in Bangor, Maine, Paul Bunyan was born on February the 12th, 1834. So there should be no mistaking that uh, Paul Bunyan was indeed born in Portland, Maine. And the 31-foot-tall Paul Bunyan statue uh, is in downtown Portland, Maine. You can drive by at any time. And it's right across from the, the Civic Center in Portland, in uh, Bangor, Maine, as a matter of fact. And uh, you, you'll see the, uh, well, the more than life-size statue of, uh, of Paul Bunyan. And today, for whatever reason, he was born February 12th, but for whatever reason, Paul Bunyan Day is being celebrated all over the world today. We will take a break, and then we shall return with uh, Brenda Cherry who's written the book, The East Indian. We hope you find it interesting. We shall return right after these words. Kale & Company Live, WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. And we are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Welcome back, Kale and Company Live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental, and we are delighted to welcome to the program Brenda Cherry. I think we go all the way to Keene to find Brenda. How are you this morning? I'm fine. How are you? I am doing uh, very well. A delight to have you along with us. And uh, Brenda is the author of the recently released The East Indian, and I, I must say, Brenda, the uh, the book is getting some uh, excellent reviews. Yes, thank you. I've been very fortunate, yes. Yeah, and uh, it's an outstanding book. I must confess that I have not had the opportunity uh, to read it, but we want to find out a lot more about the book from you. But before we uh, discuss your new book, tell us a little bit about uh, your background and, and your journey to the United States. Well, yeah, I am. I was born in India, in the southern part of India, and I came to Syracuse in New York to go to graduate school, and I completed my doctoral degree in uh, English literature at Syracuse University, and then I came to stay, uh, I mean, I came to work at Keene State College, and I've uh, lived in Keene ever since, 18 years, in fact, a long time, yeah. So that is, in short, my journey, yeah. And uh, it has been uh, quite quite a journey indeed. And uh, tell us where you, you came up with the idea for your uh, historical novel, uh, the, the East Indian. Well, I mean, I came across an article which mentioned the first uh, South Asians. And when I say South Asians, it's used broadly in the sense of people from the Indian subcontinent and India and Pakistan and surrounding countries uh, who came uh, to what is today the United States. Of course, at that point, it was still colonial America, uh, who came, and the earliest mention of the of, uh, earliest recorded entry of such a person is the year 1635. And he, it appears, 
was brought over by an English settler, an English settler in Virginia, in the Jamestown area. And this gentleman, George Menefee, brings over 23 people. And the way it worked is for every person brought across, um, the person would get uh, 50 acres of land. So George Menefee brings across 23 people. And so you can see 23 multiplied by 50. So he got a lot of land. And this was known as the head right system. And when they registered the land, they mentioned the names of all the people they brought along. And uh, on the list is... uh, Tony, he's not given a last name. He's simply called Tony East Indian. So this is where I came across the first mention. And then I tracked down a number of other East Indians who came to colonial America. In fact, they were coming here right up to the 1700s. In fact, some of them fought in the American Revolution on both sides, some on the British side, some on the American side. And it looks like, when I say many, I don't mean by the thousands. You know, we're talking of maybe a few dozen people, maybe a few more, and uh, they, most of them seem to have come from London. They came from India to London. They were probably brought over to London by East India, right? East India Company, the East India Company is this vast trading corporation which uh, was already trading with India, and it eventually went on to rule India, in fact. And it looks like East India Company officers were bringing these people, both men and women, as servants to London, and uh, some of them... Some of the East India Company officers had also invested in Virginia, and so they would bring their servants across with them to Virginia. So that seems to have been their journey. So I came across a mention of this young man and other such young men, and I decided I want to write about this story. And for me, it was not just a story about East Indians in colonial Virginia. It was also a story about early America, about the sort of early, early conception of the United States. So that's where I came from. Well, you mentioned the term uh, headright, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure many of us are are not familiar with that. What what uh, does that mean? In uh, the this was a system in place in the 1630s, at least in Virginia, and uh, Virginia is one of the early English settlements, right in uh, in North America. And uh, so, what happens is. Uh, the English have come in and they've settled and they're creating their little plantations, mostly growing tobacco. And of course, there is there are two impulses in place, three actually. One is the need for land. Every settler wants land. And two, the need for labor. Uh, tobacco is a, was a labor-intensive crop. And three, there was the need to populate the colony. And uh, so the under the headright system, for every individual you brought across, you were given 50 acres of land. So, you know, if you brought across five people, you were given 50 multiplied by five acres of land. And most people brought along family, of course, you know, siblings, brothers, cousins, that kind of thing, and others brought along uh, servants. And uh, so that is the way the system operated. Mm, Interesting. And uh, Mm -hmm. how old uh, is Tony when we first meet him? In uh, the historical Tony, we had no idea. But, but, you know, my my Tony in my book, the protagonist of my book, is just about nine or ten years old. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the story starts in India. I've got a chapter in India where his mother is a courtesan, and um, she essentially has an affair with one of the Englishmen, an East India Company officer, and... uh, and uh, Tony is not born of that union. She's already had Tony, but Tony is brought by the officers to London. And then I have a chapter in London. And he's essentially 
kidnapped from London, which again happened quite a bit. Young children of all races, in fact, uh, were kidnapped from London and brought over to Virginia again because they were looking for cheap labor. And then the rest of the novel is set in Virginia. And I have him, I kind of trace his life. And he, and by the end of the novel, he is a young man, about 20, 22. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, there's obviously extensive research that uh, went in uh, went into this book. I, I'm sure it must have taken you, uh, you know, a, n- a number of years to to research all that you have come up with. Yeah, it did. It was ex- in fact the researching took longer than the actual writing of the book. It took me years, and uh, first I had to make sure there really were East Indians in colonial Virginia. <laughs> you know, want to make up the basic fact of the story, and that's the premise. So I so I studied that, and I also had to learn a lot about colonial Virginia. I mean, I had to learn pretty much everything. I am, and uh, in my doctoral work, I did study the 1600s and the 1700s, the literature of the time. Shakespeare and contemporaries is my area of expertise. So to that extent, I'm somewhat familiar, and I'm particularly interested in sort of cross-cultural encounter and early global globalization. So to an extent, I know a little bit of what's going on, but my expertise is really England rather than America. So I really had to study everything, everything about Virginia, because uh, it's just about, I mean, I had to know the big things, right? When you're writing historical fiction, I had to understand the big things, the class system and how it operated, uh, the movement from indentured slavery, I mean, indentured servitude to eventually slavery. And I also had to know the little things, how they grew tobacco, how they, how they, the plants, the animals, the weather patterns, I mean, I knew, I realized I had to transport myself yeah. to the time period, and only then I would be able to transport my reader. And that's what I wanted to be for the reader. I want the reader to go back some 400 odd years ago to what that corner of the country was like at that point in time. And I'll bet you found out uh, more about tobacco and, and many other things than you ever thought you would know. Ever thought, yeah. And t- Tony goes on to become the apprentice of a doctor, which is, again, based on historical fact, uh, but of a physician. Physicians are, again, much in demand because this is a tough, tough world, right? There are death everywhere. So doctors are much in demand, and he goes on to become a physician's assistant. And so I studied everything about colonial medicine, which is a really a wild, bizarre, wonderful world, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And uh, you, you are a Shakespearean scholar. Uh, any any hint uh, of Shakespeare uh, throughout the book? Oh, very much so, actually. Yeah. I mean, I cannot leave Shakespeare out of anything and uh, anything else that I write. And uh, what happens is uh, Tony, while in London, watches a play, A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is a Shakespearean comedy. It is really a very delightful love story, comedy. And in that play, what you have is a fairy king and queen quarreling over a little boy. And an overlooked fact, most readers tend to overlook, even most teachers of Shakespeare tend to overlook the fact that this little boy, Shakespeare calls him an Indian boy. And uh, he is clearly an Indian from East India. You know, they talk of the spices, the spiced Indian air and so on. And uh, so this has always struck me. Why is there an Indian boy in this very English play? And uh, Tony watches this, and it strikes him too. And it's a play that stays with him, this idea of the boy, of an Indian boy who's the only person who's sort of in the landscape, who is the outsider. 
the alien, but and who has to kind of find home and find his place. So yeah, Shakespeare, particularly the Midsummer Night's Dream, does make its way into the play, into the novel. Sorry. Mm-hmm. We're talking with uh, Brenda Cherry, the author of the new book just out, The East Indian. It's getting uh, rave reviews, and uh, Brenda is joining us today from Keene. And uh, Brenda, can you hold on for a couple of minutes? I'd like to talk some more about this uh, fascinating historical novel that uh, is just out, and uh, pick it up wherever fine books are sold, and I'm sure you can get it on uh, Amazon as well. And uh, we'll have more thoughts and questions for uh, Brenda right after this break. Kale and Company live right here on WKXL nhtalkradio.com We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Stay with us. Welcome back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL nhtalkradio.com presented by Northeast Delta Dental and we're very pleased to have Brenda Cherry with us. From Keene, author of The East Indian. And uh, Brenda, again, we we mentioned that uh, the reviews have been uh, wonderful. One from Publishers Weekly, a starred review from Publishers Weekly. And I'll just quote it here. Marvelous, richly imagined characters and keen explorations of identity, place, and the power of imagination drive this luminous achievement. That's yeah. that's pretty good, Brenda. Yeah, yeah, it's been good. I mean, I'm, I'm so, well, writing itself, as many of us know, is a long, lonely process. And uh, it's always a little bit strange when, you know, when the work is ultimately in the hands of readers. And it's a little strange, it's a little frightening, too. And uh, so it's been wonderful that it's spoken to so many readers. Of course, you cannot please all readers all the time, but the fact of it, but it's spoken to so many readers, and uh, that has really pleased me. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. now, is this your, your first novel? First novel published in the United States. I published yeah. in India and in the UK previously. Ah, okay. Now, before you you undertook the, the writing uh, of this novel, did, did you know exactly where you were going with this story, or were there surprises uh, for you uh, along the way? Not exactly. I think a novel, well, writing a novel, a novel is large and unwieldy, right? So if you just sit down and start writing, I think it's going to be too overwhelming a process. So you have to have some kind of outline to please create this illusion that what you have is a manageable project. So you have an outline, but as you sit down, the outline does change. And as you go along, things modify, things happen somehow characters seem to develop themselves. And in fact, the story of the writing of the East Indian is a bit unusual. And uh, because I wrote the novel and I, you know, I mean, the whole process is you look for agents, right? So I sent it out to agents and there was one particular agent who I admired, who was in fact one of the top agents in the United States. And he got back to me and said he'd like to read it. And I sent it to him. And he said he loved it, but he felt the second half doesn't quite work. And he asked me if I'd be ready to redo the second part. And I decided I really want to work with him. So I sat down and I read it, the whole of the second half of the novel. And and I could see where he was coming from. And as I sat down and, and did the rewriting, I, I understood where his uh, 
you know, what he meant when he said it didn't work in the original version. So it took on a completely different form in the second part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, uh, so you, you thought you had a, a completed novel and then you had to change uh, the entire second half. Yeah, I had yeah. to. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine now when you when you thought it was completed. Uh, how, how long did the reworking take? Well, I was kind of determined to do it, and fortunately I was also on sabbatical from work at Keene State, and so it took me maybe five months, six um, months. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, what the th- thorough research, though, and I, I mean, uh, you you must have uh, you know learned about uh, so many things along the way. I, I've talked to writers before that say one of the reasons they write is what they discover uh, along the way that they uh, that they never yeah. had any uh, any idea uh, about. But uh, you know, the, you you learn things. It's a learning experience for the writer. Exactly, and in my case, I think uh, it has more than one benefit. You know, I am you know, obviously an immigrant to the United States. And I did not grow up studying American history. And uh, so for me and um, studying about, you know, early colonial America and the processes and the very, very complex history where you have the coming together essentially of three, mainly of three groups of people, right? I mean, European settlers, uh, people from Africa and the Native Americans and and this very long and complex history, I, it made me understand. I think more than anything else, what it gave me was, I mean, of course, it allowed me to write the novel. But beyond that, I think it helped me understand my adopted country a lot more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what kind of a, a personality uh, did Tony have? Sorry, if you'd repeat that, I didn't quite get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it, it just, I know I'm sorry I didn't quite understand your question. Oh, yeah. What 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 kind of a, a personality did uh, did Tony have? Was he? Uh, well, uh, I wanted. Uh, yeah, I didn't want a character who, you know, it's of course you know his life was hard. You can imagine the the life of the historical person must have been tremendously difficult here, right? I mean, he's made he's making this long journey, and I. People need to fathom how long the journey was. India is on the other side of the world. Even today, when you fly, it seems like a nonstop flight. But back in the day, just the journey from India to England would have taken two years, believe it or not, by ship. And, uh, you know, and, and so it would have been a hard life, and a lot of the movements were involuntary. But I wanted a character who is not sort of crushed by the weight of what happens to him. I wanted a character who is determined not just to survive, but to find happiness and to find fulfillment. And so I wanted an aspiring character. I also wanted a character who is a little bit naughty, a little bit mischievous, uh, adventurous, and um, ultimately ultimately a sort of tough, tough guy who, who makes it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and one, of the, one of the few uh, in the book that, that could read and write. Exactly. He is taught to read and write English by the by the um, the English official whom he meets in India. Yeah, and uh, that of course makes a big difference to his life, and uh, it allows him to become a physician's apprentice eventually. Yeah, and ultimately in this book uh, has a baby. He does. Yes, he does have a child by the end of the book, and. Uh, what happens historically is the East Indian population merged with the African population. 
which is why we really have no track of the East Indians later, because a lot of people ask me what happened to their descendants. But the fact of the matter is most of them either married or had relationships with uh, Africans. Uh, and uh, Africans, some of them straight from Africa, some of them African-Americans. And uh, so the children born of these unions came to be identified as black. And so that's what happened. But, and, but even today, people who carry out DNA tests in the Virginia, Carolina area, some of them find they do have East Indian heritage. And uh, so what happens is, yes, Tony has a daughter by the end of the novel, but a uh, young woman who is born of African servants. Yeah. Now, we, we talked about uh, the influence that uh, Shakespeare ha- has had on your life. Uh, are there other authors that, uh, that inspire you, other authors you like to read? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm very fortunate in that I had a, and uh, I think the biggest gift my parents and my education gave me was wide, wide reading, reading from really across the world. And that's what I would encourage anyone who wants to write to do. Don't read from just one part of the world, one tradition. So I read uh, a lot of my education was, I mean, India was a British colony, right? Till quite recently, till 70 odd years ago, which is really not that long in the sweep of history. And so I read British literature extensively. So a lot of my influence is, in fact, English literature. Shakespeare, of course, but also Dickens, the writers of the 19th century, modern writers like Hilary Mantle, a lot of Irish writing. I admire Irish writing and, um, and uh, um, Indian writing, both in English and uh, translation. And, uh, and among American writers, I particularly admire Cormac McCarthy and... Uh, Flannery O'Connor. So it's been, it's a really a wide collage of influences. And uh, I'm, like I said, I'm very, very grateful that I had this range of influences and cultural and literary traditions to draw from. Yeah. Wow. So I have to ask you, Brenda, what are you working on now? Well, I mean, I, in fact, have to work on something because the contract is for two books. So I've completed the East Indian, and I'm writing a second book, which I decided I'm going to set a little bit closer home in New England, in uh, Boston, and partly in New Hampshire, actually, and because I, you know, this is home for me. And this is set in. The, it's also historical fiction. It's set in the 19th century, and it's set in the world of sort of popular entertainment, stage performers, and particularly magicians. When I say magicians, I mean people who performed, you know, magic on stage. Wow. And this is also a very international kind of world. So I'm drawing on, and I've read a lot about that. And that's what, I mean, that's the broad sort of premise of the novel. Yeah. Wow, it sounds fascinating. Brenda, we really appreciate you joining us today uh, here on the program. I, I can't wait to, uh, to read the book. It's called The East Indian by uh, Brenda Cherry. Uh, available at uh, all great bookstores and uh, on Amazon as well. And uh, Brenda, thanks so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All right. You're most welcome. And uh, that will wrap it up for this edition of uh, Kale & Company. We're glad that you could uh, join us today for uh, the program. And uh, we will be back uh, tomorrow for another version of uh, Kale & Company. And uh, you just never know what's going to happen on this program. And uh, that's why live radio is so much fun. And if you missed any part of the show today or just want to hear it again, uh, you can tune in tonight 
just after the uh, after the seven o'clock update, right here on WKXL fourteen fifty AM one zero three nine FM in the Capital Region one zero one nine FM in Manchester and beyond. Streaming at nhtalkradio.com, and you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. So you can't miss us. WKXL nhtalkradio.com. Thanks so much for being with us today. And hopefully we'll see you tomorrow just a little after 8 o'clock right here on WKXL. Have a great Wednesday, everybody.